everyone and welcome to the Modern Cotton Story sponsored by E3 Sustainable Cotton from BASF. I'm Jennifer Crumpler, Fiber Development Manager and Manager of the E3 Sustainable Cotton Program and I'll also be your host of today's program. So I'm really excited um, because we do have a returning guest here with us um, who really is an expert in all things when it comes to textiles and has really gotten to be one of my favorite guests on the show. Um, and today we're going to really talk a lot about and discuss, you know, made in America and the health of the American textile industry. Um, so for me, it's exciting because I think this has been a hot topic um, that's on everyone's mind, whether it's what's happening at the ports, what's happening with logistics, supply chain um, throughout wow. multiple different industries. Um, so excited to really dive into the textile space today. I'm also joined by industry consultant and good friend, Bob Anishak. So Bob, welcome um, back on today. Thank you, Jennifer. I uh, hope you're having a good morning. I am. I am. It's um, Friday. And I think we've talked about this before. The um, I really wish when they were deciding work days and weekends that I'd been part of the conversation because the five-day work day and the two-day weekend just doesn't seem fair. I think we need to split it up. <laughs> Gotta half it up. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, it's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, um, and many of our listeners know, and for some of you who are new listeners um, that haven't had a chance, so um, Augie Tantilla is a textile industry consultant, and he's the former CEO of the National Council of Textile Organizations. So Augie, thanks so much um, for being on and coming back and really excited about um, hearing from you today. That's great to be here, uh, Jennifer and Bob, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. And um, Augie, I know you've had an extremely accomplished career in D.C. in the textile industry. You've worked in trade policy for many years. Um, you know, anyone who knows you knows you're really an expert in that global textile trade policy, government relations. Um, and I know we're going to dive into some of that, but would love, um, you know, many of our listeners know you, but I know there've got a lot of new listeners on the show since you were on last. So I was wondering if you would talk a bit about your background so we can just learn a little bit more about you. Sure. Um, well, I'm an old timer now. I, I go back to the early 80s when I first came to Washington um, and uh, worked on Capitol Hill uh, in a Senate office uh, dealing with various issues, uh, agricultural policy and international trade policy. Um, from there, uh, I was fortunate to get a, a job under the Herbert Walker Bush administration in the late 1980s uh, at the Department of Commerce, uh, working specifically on textile-related uh, issues. And uh, from that point, Jennifer and Bob, I have spent the last 30-some-odd years representing domestic textile manufacturers in one form or another, either as a consultant or as you mentioned uh, more recently uh, as the CEO of the National Council of Textile Organizations, which is headquartered in Washington. Awesome. And I know you, um, probably your favorite job though is probably playing grandpa um, around now. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, I'm blessed to have three 
and one Wonderful. on the way. So uh, we're looking forward to a, another addition to our extended family. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, um, Augie, let's kind of jump right in. So can you um, maybe kind of talk about, I know there's a lot happening right now um, in sure. the industry, whether it is to introduce a new um, policy or what regulations and trade, logistics, supply chain, all of it. Um, so would mind, you know, maybe just kind of tell us about how is the American industry and textile space doing these days? Well, um, interestingly enough, uh, I've seen the ups and downs over this past 40 some odd years, uh, really some torturous times for the industry in the 80s, late 90s, uh, mid 2000s. Um, but here in its current uh, state, I'm extremely uh, proud of and always a little bit surprised uh, as to the resiliency of the U.S. textile industry. Um, Bob can tell you that there were many people predicting the complete dismantling of the U.S. textile supply chain back in the early to mid 2000s. Um, but not only did they survive that, uh, the industry has, has enjoyed quite a rebound for the last dozen years or so. Uh, producing over $70 billion in, in total output, about $30 billion of that they export. And while uh, it's a smaller industry than what it was, obviously, in the early 1980s, it's a very highly competitive, uh, very resilient, uh, vibrant industry, in my opinion. Loggy, historically... What's been the uh, landscape on, uh, or the background on Made in America? I mean, there's been a lot of campaigns done on the marketing and public relations side, but what's been the, the real industry push behind that? Sure. Well, there's some good news on that front, Bob, but before you can really understand the good news, you, you have to understand the bad news. Uh, um, made in America is a subset, in my opinion, of our broader trade policy. And for the post-World War II environment, really the last 60 years or so, the United States government and our policymakers in Washington were, were highly focused on liberalizing the U.S. market. And they were doing that um, not necessarily for economic reasons, doing it for geopolitical reasons. You have to remember uh, coming out of World War II in the 50s and 60s where the strongest economic, political, military, industrial uh, nation in the world. And, and there were a lot of folks in Washington who felt that it was okay to make concessions in the international trade arena uh, in order to... Uh, improve our diplomatic standing with world to promote democracy, so forth and so on. And Buy American was a, a bit of a, a casualty under that mindset. Uh, we have plenty of Buy American rules on the books, but for years, um, 
it seemed as if our government and Congress were more willing to approve uh, waivers, exceptions, loopholes uh, that made many Buy American aspects uh, meaningless. And there's one strong exception, and that's in, in military procurement, where the U.S. industry has done a fierce job of, mm -hmm. of ensuring uh, that that particular provision was not watered down. But then um, the good news uh, is that about four or five years ago, um, the mindset started to change. Uh, and that uh, recalibration, so to speak, started under President Trump. And, you know, love him, hate him, whatever your position is. Um, one thing is for sure, he was a contrarian uh, and he came to Washington and he challenged just about every institutional uh, position uh, across the board and trade was, was not uh, an exception. Uh, he was very demonstrative about reversing that mindset of, of making concessions uh, within the US market without necessarily getting uh, reciprocal or meaningful commercial uh, benefits. And he really started strongly promoting Buy American, uh, and it suddenly became something that wasn't so alien uh, within the policymaking process and thought process in Washington. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Joe Biden gets elected, and he sets about to undo a lot of the things that Joe Biden, I'm sorry, that President Trump was doing. And, and he would argue that he had a mandate to do that. But Buy American is one of the few uh, areas where he hasn't reversed uh, the Trump positioning. Uh, and I think a key factor there is that you had the, uh, the recalibration that started with President Trump in 2017. You then had COVID which crystallized for so many people in Washington just how uh, uh, devastating it can be if you are totally dependent on offshore supply lines for key products or even everyday products. Uh, this came into focus with personal protective equipment, medical personal protective equipment, or PPE. Uh, we had drastic shortages in those areas uh, at the height of uh, the, the pandemic uh, in the spring and summer of 2020. China, which was the major supplier of PPE to the U.S., actually started restricting exports of those products to our yeah. market. And for the first time, policymakers understood the argument in real life and in real time. It's not just the theory. The U.S. should not be completely dependent or substantially dependent on players around the world, some of which don't, don't necessarily uh, hold our same value system, um, because in, in times of crisis, they may not come to our rescue. Uh, and so that was a hard lesson, but it did actually lead to a strengthening of the view that Buy American is important. 
So, you know, and that's interesting, Augie, um, from your part, you know, the Buying America, and you mentioned prior to the um, trade. And so if we look at trade in the industry, and you mentioned there's loopholes, because I know there's a lot of loopholes. There's some in the textile space who figured out, well, we might ship stuff to one country, but if we can get this done here, we technically don't have to say it's made there and we can bypass the country. Um, you know, and I know recently we've had, you know, with CAFTA, we've had USMCA, we've got some other different trade agreements that are happening. You know, do you, how do you think those are affecting um, the U.S. industry? And do you potentially see any other of these agreements with other countries or geographies coming, you know, maybe potentially being highlighted um, or coming about? Uh, that's a... <laughs> An incredibly important question right now, Jennifer, because it is uh, the central point of a rather uh, uh, aggressive debate that's taking place in D.C. Um, do the various free trade agreements that the United States has, especially those in, in this hemisphere, uh -huh. CAFTA, DR, Colombia, Peru, and uh, Mexico and Canada to a lesser degree, because that was just renegotiated. But do those agreements um, stand the test of time? Should they be uh, revised? Uh, the apparel importing community um, is demanding uh, a revision to a lot of these agreements to weaken what we call the yarn forward rule. And the yarn forward rule simply lays out what are the prerequisites that you must undertake in order to get the benefit of duty-free treatment when the United States exchanges textile and apparel goods with the CAFTA region, with mm -hmm. Colombia, where we have a free trade agreement. And um, I think that any reasonable analysis of the history of these agreements and how they played out is that they've been strongly successful from the standpoint of both the U.S. industry and the region with which we have an agreement. Uh, for example, we have about $12.5 billion in two-way trade in textiles and apparel every year between the United States and the CAFTA region. It is the CAFTA region's largest export product to the U.S. And the Western Hemisphere and the CAFTA region are the largest textile and apparel uh, landing spot for our exports of, of uh, fibers, yarns, and fabrics. And what these agreements have done is they built a co-production arrangement um, that is able to compete with the supply chain coming out of Asia. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it would be hard to do just on our own in the United States to compete with Asia. And it would be hard for the CAFTA countries, for example, to compete with Asia without access to uh, high quality fiber, cotton, for example, 
coming out of the United States, high quality cotton yarn uh, and fabrics coming out of the United States. So um, I, I think it's been a, a fantastic success story. Uh, but when you see people wanting to dismantle that arrangement, you have to ask, well, why? What, what's the driving force behind yeah, wanting yeah. to change that? Uh, and everybody has a different business model. But for me, I, I see it from a policy standpoint. And that is that the, uh, the pressure is on the importing community to exit China. Uh, you have the, the forced labor situation yeah. uh, in Western China. You have intellectual property theft. Um, and subsidy and dumping cases. And so uh, a portion of the apparel importing community is saying, okay, we got to get out of China, uh, if not completely, at least partially. And what they're doing is saying, well, we want our cake and eat it too. Yeah, we'll move out of China and Asia if you let us ship Chinese yarns and fabrics to Honduras and El Salvador and yeah. have them sewn mm -hmm. there and then sent to the United States duty free. <laughs> well, and, and you course, know, we also right. in that space too, Augie, I think it's interesting because a lot of the countries, you know, that absolutely are important for the textile market are extremely important in the agriculture space. Um, so whether it is exporting you know, cotton, raw fiber of cotton, whether it's exporting soybeans, um, corn, other, whatever it is, you know, they're all important. And I think it's been interesting for me, um, you know, as our listeners knows, I've spent my entire career in the ag space, except for the past few years, really working with some great partners downstream for the traceability component of it. But it's been interesting to see how there's still some of that missing gap when we look at policy standpoint of, Yes, we want the materials. Yes, we, you know, the yarn and the fiber and not really some of that pull together of the agriculture industry with some of this. And I think it's really been interesting to see, you know, some of this play out in the last couple of years. Absolutely. And I'm probably going to go a little bit further than I should. Um, That's okay. I do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> But to me, a part of this push to open up our trade agreements in the Western Hemisphere and to allow for uh, inputs that come from Asia, including China, it's a bit of greenwashing um, from a traceability standpoint. Yeah. Uh, it's a, going to be almost impossible for our custom service which currently does have restrictions on direct shipment of Chinese cotton and cotton product to the U.S. Uh, produced in the Uyghur region, it, it would be almost impossible for them to also then figure out, oh, well, this cotton yarn, which came from Western China, was shipped to Honduras, which was spun into a yarn, which was then sent to uh, uh, Guatemala, which was knit into a garment, which then comes to the United States. And oh, we still want duty-free treatment yeah. on that. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And you can see, and, and 
you know, people have said, oh, Augie, you're, you're paranoid. You, you see the worst case under every scenario. And my response is, that's what I got paid to do for the better part of 45 <laughs> years. Because if I was going to be naive and assume that everybody plays by the rules all the time, then I'm in the wrong business. Uh, because you have to formulate policy, not necessarily based on what the honorable segment of the trade will do. Yes. You have to base it on what the, the percentage, whether that's 10 or 20 or 30% of the trade is willing to do to mm -hmm. cheat the system. Um, oh, and so, yeah. Yeah. Augie, if you were to do a, uh, you're familiar with SWOT analysis, right? Yes, generally. Right. Okay, so strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. It's kind of a, you know, business school kind of thing. Yeah. Um, this question could be turned into a full-size paper easily. <laughs> but <laughs> but generally speaking, if you were to apply a SWOT analysis to the uh, American industry, uh, what would you say? I mean, what were some of the factors for each of those? Sure. Well, let, let me first admit that I failed all my business classes in college back in the 1930s. <laughs> well, you know what? There's a bunch of economists who did as well. So, and I think today, these days are, are proving that. So anyway. Well, uh, with that said, um, two or three things. <clears throat> first of all, upstream, we are as vibrant and as strong and as efficient and productive as anybody in the world. Uh, we are a wonderful source of reliable, high quality fiber. And cotton, again, is a perfect example. Uh, we have uh, the most efficient yarn spinning capacity in the world. Uh, anyone who's been in a yarn factory in the United States will see that it's a virtual lights out operations. Uh, uh, we have very strong uh, knitting and weaving and dyeing and finishing uh, aspects. The bottleneck has always been uh, that we need a customer for those products because the cut and sew component of the business has gone offshore for the most part. Uh, and that's why these partnerships, uh, in terms of Jennifer's earlier question with, with uh, CAFTA in the Western Hemisphere are so important. And they continue to be uh, today and uh, as they were 20, 30 years ago when these agreements were first set up. Now, beyond that, I think the industry's done a tremendous job in terms of product innovation. Um, when, when we look at the amount of, uh, and this gets out of the apparel sector to a degree, when you look at the amount of industrial and technical in-use applications that we are now uh, uh, associating with textile products, uh, it's amazing. Construction fabrics, medical fabrics, aerospace, automotive, um, and there's been a significant expansion in those areas uh, in, in the last 20 years. Uh, and I think it was one of the lessons learned by the industry that you have to be in, innovative, 
you have to compete on quality and you also have to uh to find that next product line because um competing with china on a commodity apparel basis that those days are gone um uh competing with china on quality apparel yarns and fabrics and finding new end use applications that's what the future is and uh i think our industry's done a good job of, of taking taking that um an aggressive approach to that so augie what do you think um looking forward what do you think um some things that you know going forward what's manufacturing american manufacturing and kind of going forward, what um, do you think will be some things that are happening there or what's it going to look like going from here? Well, circling back to your, uh, one of your earlier questions, the environment for Buy American has never been stronger. Uh, and if you are a manufacturer who is interested in doing business with the federal government, has a product line that fits neatly into the federal government, uh, this is the time to research your opportunities. In fact, because of COVID, we had the first significant expansion to buy American, uh, really, you know, and that I can remember over my 40 year career. And that was a bill called the Make PPE in America Act. And it essentially now requires the US government to buy 100% made US medical personal protective equipment. And the government buys a ton of it for the, the national stockpile, for health and human services, uh, for you know, veterans affairs, uh, hospitals and so forth and so on. Um, and so, uh, if you're remotely involved in that area, I encourage you to research that uh, because the contracts are going to shift from what was almost totally imported to now uh, needing to be made here in the U.S. And that will stimulate investment in that area. Yeah. Um, secondly, uh, the co-production arrangements that we talked about in this region are, are strong. Um, and, and those countries recognize it and they help on the policy debate to say like, hey, we like the arrangement that we have. Uh, let's not tinker with it. So uh, finding uh, co-production partners in this hemisphere makes more sense today than it did even 20 years ago because there is a motivation now to to tighten supply chain, uh, to bring them closer to home on top of the social environmental issues that have plagued some of the supply chains coming out of countries like China. So there is a gravitational pull um, that hasn't existed for 20 years uh, or longer. Uh, uh, yeah. where buyers are saying, yeah, I need to do at least some percentage of my business in this hemisphere. So I think the, the short-term 
uh, uh, perspective for our industry is good. Uh, at the same time, we have to continue to do the things that make us competitive. You've got to reinvest, you got to modernize, you got to be technology uh, driven. And uh, I think the, the last thing is you do have to start embracing the social changes that are out there because they are going to be not only good for society and the environment, they're going to be good for business. Yeah. I think and, this uh, yeah. So, Augie, yeah. I know um, I, I have another question. And, Bob, I'm sure you do, but I want to take all the time because <laughs> I get asked Augie a million questions. But one thing, you know, Augie, you mentioned that, um, you know, embracing it and it's going to be kind of that time for the industry and for whether it's, you know, the manufacturers, whether it's brands or whatever. I guess mine is, I guess, a kind of a two part question. One, you know, do you see or do you feel that the industry is starting to embrace more of the transparency traceability component? Or do you think that it's still going to need um, before it really will be highly embraced? You know, we've got certain states like New York and others that have introduced the fashion, like, you know, the fashion act and others were requiring um, from that state level to have traceability in requiring that do you see the industry moving towards it as you mentioned or do you I mean do you, or do you see that or do you feel like hey until there is regulations in place or policy or others maybe it won't be as much um but then also the other question is and I know this is probably a long question to get the answer to but um you know those that have embraced it the made America traceability and understanding it you know what do you think is going to come the point the the high point of, because we do know downstream brands are paying or, or capturing a higher price um, to consumers. What do you think that consumer point of, from a financial standpoint before it's just like, you know, I think this is great, but it's been, you know, made America and some of the consumer pay, space is priced out of what, what can the, the economy can hold. Well, uh, Jennifer, the first part of your question, uh, and I'm, I've thought about this um, and I've seen it, lived it. Uh, our industry is like every other uh, facet of U.S. industry and, and to some degree, every facet of society. We have a subset within our industry of visionaries, leaders, people who seen this for what it is and have said we're on it <clears throat> and we're not going to fight it and we're not going to argue about it in fact we're going to embrace it and we're going to take a leadership role in this in driving our business and our sector in this direction there are always going to be players who for whatever reason don't see the picture as quickly or are constrained by uh, leverage, uh, you know, within their own company and their handicap with what they can do and can't do. But the people who embrace this, and there are uh, uh, many in our industry already, they're going to be the big winners on this. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, those who don't, I think are going to pay a price. Uh, and I saw this on international trade 
And I saw this uh, uh, going back to my earliest days uh, working on these issues. There were some companies that were always reinvesting, always modernizing, always improving their quality. It was just part of their culture. And then there were others who were not putting that level of emphasis. And many of those in that second category got washed out, got wiped out when the storm hit. Mm-hmm. My message to our industry as, as a sort of a parting message is someone who's, you know, uh, on the last, uh, last lap or two of their career is that, hey, embrace it and, and be a leader in this area because you're going to benefit from it Again, not only socially and environmentally, but commercially. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think that, that there are going to be, uh, the, your second question is, there, there's always the parameter of, okay, well, how much is too much? And when does the consumer opt out? That's the challenge. Uh, how do we embrace these things without pricing ourselves out of the marketplace? Um, and uh, again, the parallel here was that 40 years ago, the companies that said, look, we are going to reinvest and innovate. It, it's costly. And we're not going to fight, for example, OSHA. We're going to invite them into our plants and we're going to let them tell us, here's how you become 1000% compliant with OSHA. Why? Because a safe workplace is a productive workplace. A safe and clean workplace is a profitable workplace. The ones who said, oh boy, gosh, you know, I don't want anybody coming in here and telling me what to do. They learned the hard way. And uh, I'd say the same thing on this issue. Uh, Sustainability, traceability, knowing your supply chain and having complete confidence in dealing with any customer and saying, you are not going to have to worry about how this was produced, where it was made, under what conditions, because I can tell you what we have done, the safeguards we put in place to give you a product that meets the standards of a 21st century consumer. And at the end of the day, I think that's going to pay huge dividends for them. Uh, but you do have to do it in a way you have to be efficient and you have to look for other ways to take cost out so that you're not asking people to pay a dramatic premium uh, uh, for what they're consuming. Yeah. Well, Augie, I appreciate you being on so much and Bob um, as well. And like I said, I could continue to ask you, um, Lots and lots of questions, but we are about out of time. So again, thank you guys for both being on and for such a great discussion. Um, Augie, if our listeners have any further questions or should like to reach out um, for anything from you, what is the best way for them to do that? 
Sure. Um, my uh, email address is Augie, A-U-G-G-I-E-S-R-G at gmail.com. And SRG is the name of my consulting group. Uh, it actually is the first letters of my my three daughters. First oh, names. wonderful. <laughs> Sarah, wonderful. Rebecca, and Gabrielle. So Perfect. Um, perfect. Well, thank you again so much, Augie. And I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us and hope that you enjoyed the show. Should you have any questions about the E3 Sustainable Cotton Program, please email me at e3cotton at basf.com. Also, don't forget to visit us on Instagram and Facebook at E3 Sustainable Cotton. Thanks so much and see you next time.